welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talking Migration is supported by the Department of Politics and the Migration Research Group at the University of Sheffield. There are many calls for reforming the way that the world protects or fails to protect refugees. Some have suggested that the UN Refugee Convention is outdated, others that the right to asylum should be abolished, or that asylum claims should be processed offshore. At the same time, the UNHCR has been drafting a global compact on refugees, promising to increase global cooperation on refugee protection. James Hathaway, who's James E. and Sarah A. Deegan Professor of Law at the University of Michigan, is the founding director of the University of Michigan's program in refugee asylum law and author of The Law of Refugee Status and the Rights of Refugees Under International Law. James Hathaway has put forward a model for a global solution on refugee protection based on a five-year project involving over 100 participants, including six governments. He's also been very critical of the work on the Global Compact on Refugees. I started this episode by asking James Hathaway if the Refugee Convention is fit for purpose. Well, the answer is yes and no. I mean, yes, the Convention has, in my view, got the definition of refugee right. It's a malleable definition that works and has been shown to be amenable to change over time. The rights that refugees get under the convention, primarily focused on rights of self-reliance, are again exactly right. Uh, So there's nothing wrong with the substance of the refugee convention. What is wrong is that it hasn't got an operational mechanism. Uh, what we've got are, you know, something like 160 states all individually implementing or not the convention in their own particular ways that is both extremely expensive, wasteful in my view, but more important, uh, that that isn't fair. What we've ended up with is a system where, you know, 10 countries in the world, all of them poor, do more than 60% of the work under the refugee treaty for what is supposed to be a shared responsibility. We're, we've got a situation where people are having to risk their lives in order to get to protection, where they're either stuck in refugee camps or in urban slums uh, for most of their lives, where we spend three times as much money to process the small number, roughly 10% of refugees who get to rich countries as we make available to the 90% of refugees in poor countries. And and worst of all, you know, we've got roughly 12 million refugees who've been waiting an average of 20 years for a solution w- with absolutely no prospect of a solution in sight. So the convention is a complete mess in terms of its operationalization. And that's where I think the change needs to be made. In other words, the task is not to rewrite the convention. The task is actually to implement the convention. Right. And I'll um, come on to you um, just in a moment of uh, uh, asking you how that might be done in relation to um, right. some of the work done on the Global Compact. But first, I was just going to ask there, to, to overcome some of the issues that you mentioned, some um, politicians uh, and other people have called for the right to seek asylum to be limited and they think this might increase the incentives for states to um, to to up their resettlement quota instead. Do you think that's a good idea? Look, I don't think these are competing um, competing options. You 
have to have a right to seek asylum or else the people can't get out in order to be protected in the first place. And we can't yet, at least, find ways to get people out of dangerous places dependably and, and to safety. So, of course, the right of people to get out by whatever means they can and to reach whatever safe country they're able to reach has to be maintained. But I am sympathetic to the view that the role of resettlement as a protection tool, not not as an add-on the way that UNHCR now treats it, but as a core part of the protection paradigm has been uh, underutilized. Uh, in my view, the way the system should work is that you get out and you get to whatever country you can. And indeed, if we can help people to get out, we should. But the, the place that you arrive is simply your point of entry into the international system. There would then be a mechanism to share out responsibility as among state parties through a mechanism that would look more like resettlement than like, you know, you just land wherever you land and you stay there. So there's nothing sensible about the idea that accidents of geography determine who has the responsibility to protect refugees. I agree with states on that point. But the answer is not to get rid of asylum. The answer is to have a mechanism that shares out responsibilities once asylum has enabled the refugee to get into the protection system in the first place. So I suppose there is a lot of talk in, in the EU, for example, about processing asylum claims outside of the EU. So how is that different to the kind of um, status determination mechanism that, that you might have in mind? Right. And, and look, there may be some possibilities. Let, I mean, but let's be clear, we ought not to be talking about uh, processing refugees in countries of origin which are dangerous, nor should we be talking about, as the EU now seems to like to talk about, uh, keeping refugees in horrible prisons in Libya and, and dealing with them there. It's not neither of those options. If you had a situation where in safe and dignified situations, refugees could be processed and then uh, provided with protection options in different countries around the world, I think that would be wonderful. I think that's something to be celebrated. But again, there's no reason that has to be an either or with asylum as we've traditionally understood it. If you were actually to make protection options available to refugees in the region of origin, where again, you know, roughly 90% of refugees stay anyway, if you actually made those protection options available and they were real protection options, there aren't a lot of people who would put their lives on the line crossing the Mediterranean if they knew they could get the same result by going to a safe country closer to home that didn't pose the same risk. On the other hand, there will be some refugees for whom getting to those you know, safe centers will not be as viable as getting out in some other way. And there's no reason to stigmatize people who travel further afield is illegitimate. They're simply people accessing the system in a different way. What I'm suggesting is they shouldn't be rewarded with an immigration result by going to a rich country. They should have the same access to the same system with the same opportunities as someone who sought protection closer to home. That, I think, is a fair route to take the system. It's not an immigration system. It's a human rights system. It's a protection regime. And if we want to rationalize our protection capacity in a way that doesn't reward people who go farther from home, but neither does it stigmatize them, then I'm all for that. So the protection options within the 
area closer to uh, countries of origin, do you mean a similar sort of routes to citizenship as you might get in a, um, well, say, in a European country? No. I mean, citizenship isn't part of the paradigm. So this is where the confusion comes in with refugee protection and immigration. States have a duty to consider in good faith giving refugees a permanent status. That's Article 34 of the Refugee Treaty. But refugees are not required to be assimilated permanently. They're only entitled to protection for the duration of risk in line with the rights that are set out in the Convention. When we confuse those two, when we turn refugee protection into a disguised immigration system, we up the ante for states, and we do create a situation in which it becomes more logical for them to resist the arrival of refugees. So my view is that refugees could and should ordinarily be protected in the region of origin for up to the first five years or so. That allows a significant number of refugees to repatriate. It allows for the possibility of local integration, which if you actually treat refugees decently and let them work, we've seen can be an incredibly viable option. But at the end of five years, uh, we guarantee every refugee a permanent solution to his or her predicament. If she can't go home, she can't integrate locally. This is where the resettlement side of the protection regime would, under my model, click in. States outside the region of origin would have the primary obligation to provide resettlement, which would be probably based on figures over the last 20 years for roughly half of the refugees in the world. That would be their role instead of the very wasteful, expensive 16.5 billion euro a year you know, processing systems that only create really opportunities for lawyers, judges, and bureaucrats rather than for refugees. And we transmute the uh, system that we have now in developed countries into a big resettlement system. Now, what, what's really interesting about this is the numbers are actually, you know, shockingly similar. We would need about 1.7 million resettlement places uh, a year under the model I'm proposing. We're now getting 1.65 million asylum claims in OECD countries every year. So effectively what I'm talking about is changing the role of rich countries from processing to providing permanent homes for those who can't go home within a reasonable period of time. I suppose, uh, which is relates a bit to my um, previous question, is that a, a, a lot of states outside of the countries of origin would only agree to this if it was the case that um, they didn't also have to... Um, uh, they didn't also have to admit those people. That's exactly who did, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. And and so the whole point then is you don't you don't need these fancy bells and whistles asylum systems in the developed world that again are costing us a small fortune every year. I mean, literally three times what UNHCR has to spend on ninety percent of refugees in the world. That amount is spent for ten percent of refugees to process their claims in rich countries. That, that's not a sensible proposition. So what I'm suggesting is whether you arrive uh, in Morocco or in Malta, you'd be processed quickly by an international agency. 
largely group-based status determination. You do not need, in most cases, a fancy system to figure out whether a Syrian is a refugee or not. The answer is obviously yes. And we simply move them to protection in the region of origin for a period of years, let them get on with their lives, guarantee them rights of mobility to work, to educate their kids. And if at the end of five years it proves impossible for them to go home or to stay where they are comfortably, then we resettle them permanently in a way that makes it impossible for us to have the protracted refugee situation phenomenon that we have today. So I suppose there are two things there that are quite different from um, <clears throat> what, how it currently works. So what first is then that it would require the, the say, the Syrian who arrived in Malta to effectively be sent sent to back to the region of origin, whichever country well, that you know, might. Um, so let's 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 just stop with that one before you go to your second yeah. point. I mean, this is not a big deal. We've done this many times, right? We 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 did this after the Second World War. The International Refugee Organization had its own fleet of ships that moved people around the world to places of protection wherever they happened to be located in the original point of contact with the system. It's not logistically that complex. If in fact the word gets out that by arriving in Malta, you're going to, in most cases, have a regional solution in any event. And if it really is a regional solution, not a Libyan detention center, that's not what I'm talking about, but real rights regarding protection for risk, including complete freedom of movement, complete work and education rights, everything the Refugee Convention actually requires, then it won't be long before very few refugees will be making the dangerous journey in any event. There'd be no logic to it. We're actually going to put smugglers out of business very quickly because they would have no immigration result to sell. So, you know, we can easily do this. And if we do it for a period of years, we will probably need less of it because fewer refugees will see the logic of getting into the system that way. The problem is right now, we don't give them that option. There is no easy regional option to be protected for many, if not most, refugees. And that is where I think we do need to begin to actually enhance that capacity. And we can only do that if we take on a binding, not this crazy UNHCR talk shop version, but a binding system of responsibility and burden sharing that gives states in the region of origin confidence that if they play fairly by refugees, we will play fairly by them. That has never been the case. And I understand their reluctance to go down this road until and unless that mechanism is in place. Yeah, so you, you, um, uh, that covered my second question as well, which is the difference between um, what's being on offer now and, and your suggestion, which is this uh, protection, including work, education, freedom of movement, etc. Uh, so uh, maybe move on to um, what you just started talking about there, the, um, the, the work, uh, the present work on the global compact, compact of refugees. Uh, and that you've been quite critical of this work. And so what do you see as the main issues and what would you have liked to see instead? Wow. That's a big question. <laughs> That's a big question. Look, Perhaps focus the, on this idea of the binding. Well, let's, let's, let's start with the basics, though. I mean, the you know the, the global compact. I love that it's global compact on refugees, not for refugees, and I think that tells yeah, you a true, lot. Yeah. It's it's an agreement about refugees. It's an effort to manage refugees by an agency that has started calling itself the UN Refugee Agency, rather than the High Commissioner for Refugees. Again. Words matter. And I think what we're seeing being put forward is a plan that 
enables UNHCR to appear to be doing something without actually asking states to do anything differently. And so that's what we've got. First of all, you know, the idea of what's being proposed is completely, utterly voluntarist. There are no obligations of any kind under what UNHCR has proposed. All that states agree is that when there is a, quote, large, unquote, movement of refugees, and I'll come back to that in a moment, they'll get together and talk about it and try to figure out how they can help. Uh, there are some principles in the document which are basically already law. So there's no new principle here. It's simply that there is an agreement to get together to try to agree on how to help situation by situation, nothing systematic of the kind I've proposed. Each and every time there's a large movement, we'll have a separate sort of pledging conference style initiative and hopefully states will do the right thing. Well, a lot's wrong with that. A, you know, if you're the country receiving the mass inflow of refugees, how confident are you going to be to keep your doors open to those refugees if the UN says to you, oh, by the way, don't worry, mate, uh, we'll be having a conference soon and hopefully we can figure out a way to help you. I mean, that's not burden or responsibility sharing. That's too vague. It's not reliable, right? I mean, the, but, but, but the more fundamental part of, of, of the process is that it only applies episodically and to so-called large movements of refugees. So we don't know what a large movement is. Is it 10,000, 100,000, a million? Nobody knows because it's not defined. Uh, and if and when it happens, we ask states to take on this add-on role of a pledging conference in addition to everything they already do. So we're not replacing one implementation model with another. We're asking states to do everything they do now and do more. And I think that's a really politically naive starting point. If you simply say to states, by the way, you have all the obligations you have now, you have to fund all of your domestic asylum systems the way you do now, you have to do everything you do now, and by the way, you should do this too, I don't suspect there's going to be a whole lot of action under the voluntarist model. They'll get together, they'll chat, they'll hand out some charity, they'll walk away, and poor countries will be left with 90%, if not more, of the responsibility, virtually all of the burden, and nothing will have fundamentally changed. If you had instead actually said, we're spending a lot of money to run these fancy systems to determine asylum for only 10% of the refugees in rich countries. We, we could rechannel that money to actually providing options both for refugees and the communities that receive them, startup grants to let refugees be economically productive with those communities. We're going to rechannel that money in a way that enables you, Tanzania, next time 100,000 refugees come calling, to know, not to hope to know that there are guaranteed funds to enable you to cope and to actually assist those refugees viably to be protected on your turf. We, we could have done all of this with less than the amount of money that is currently being wasted in the system we already have. We don't even need new money. That's the tragic part of this. So, so the whole model is, I think, just fundamentally misconceived. It's, you know, a voluntarist add-on with no duties. It only applies to so-called large movements. And even then, it's only a pledging conference. So really, under the grand name of a global compact, all we've done is to systematize what's been happening episodically in any event where states get together, they either do or don't pitch in. And the result has been that poor countries do almost all the work and 
12 million refugees are stuck in protracted refugee situations waiting for a solution. That's not going to change under this model. So what you're saying um, seems to make a lot of sense, um, but, but clearly things aren't really moving in this direction. So what do you think, why do you think it's so difficult for states or, um, or for the UNHCR to propose and for, to get states to agree on a workable system, especially given that in the past we have seen large numbers of refugees being um, uh, resettled uh, quite successfully? Sure. The comprehensive plan of action has worked. Other there are models out there that show how states can undertake what I, you know, borrow from environmental law, the phrase common but differentiated responsibility, different states doing different jobs that all contribute to a protection result. That model has been there. I mean, we proposed this model 20 years ago after a five-year study involving more than 100 participants and six governments, right? The model has been out there for a long time, drawing on those experiences, I think the real problem is that we haven't had any leadership on this issue. And on that, I criticize both states and UNHCR. You know, we've had some good citizen uh, leaders in the world. It's certainly true that, you know, the Anglo Americas of the world have done well by refugees, uh, but they haven't actually stood up and said, let's now globalize the system. All right. They have not done that. UNHCR, I think, has a special institutional and ethical responsibility. It likes to claim that it's the focal point for refugee protection worldwide. When it seized control of this process from the secretary general two or three years ago, it ought to have had a plan in place, which it did not. It therefore came forward, wasted the first two years of this process with absolutely nothing on the table and all of these years later still has not put a concrete proposal on the table. It requires salesmanship. You've got to be able to say that here are the advantages of this regime for rich states. Here are the advantages of this regime for poor states. And most particularly, here are the advantages of this regime for refugees. I mean, the truth is the model I'm proposing is a win-win-win for all three of those constituencies. It provides real value for rich countries, poor countries, and refugees, but it requires someone in the middle, like UNHCR or a consortium of good citizen states to say, enough is enough. The Refugee Convention is right. The rights in the convention make sense, but the way we implement it makes no sense. Here's an optional protocol that will allow states to actually opt in to a global managed insurance-based regime in which we cooperate on providing protection rather than doing it one by one by one at horrific cost. That's what's missing. So it's <clears throat> a marketing issue primarily, well, almost. You know, mar mar marketing <laughs> makes it sound slim, doesn't it? But, 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 but I think, you know, at one level, you're right. Uh, but, but I would say it's, it's, it's a leadership deficit. Mm -hmm. No one has really taken hold of this. And I understand that UNHCR believes that it's a tough world right now and that states aren't exactly clamoring to take in more refugees. And in their view, that makes it a moment for caution and consolidation. I understand that. But I actually think they're fundamentally wrong. You know, the, the idea that the best uh, defense is a strong offense, I think is exactly correct in this instance. If you were to show states, as it can easily be shown, 
that a model along the lines of what I've proposed actually does more for them at less cost than the current system. It enables them, rich countries, for example, to end the illegitimate smuggling market. They have nothing to sell. It gives them a social role that is a better fit, permanent resettlement rather than lots of spontaneous asylum seekers. It allows them lots of time to vet their security concerns before people are admitted to their territory. If you actually were to play those cards carefully and thoughtfully with rich countries, I think they would see the value of this regime, even as poorer countries would see the value in a system that guarantees them funding, not requiring them to go with a begging bowl every time a crisis occurs, that actually enables refugees and the communities that host them to be economically vibrant, and most importantly, which does not stick poor countries with the permanent responsibility for refugees who can't ultimately go home, but which rather guarantees a resettlement after a period of years. If you actually marketed this regime on all of those levels, it is saleable, but it requires someone who is strong enough, connected enough, eloquent enough, and committed enough to make this happen. To find out more about the work of James Hathaway and the model for global solution to refugee protection that he's proposing, please visit our website, talkingmigration.com. And just a little heads up that the podcast will come out with one more episode in the next few weeks, but then the frequency of episodes will slow down a little bit as the podcast goes on a little bit on maternity leave. To stay updated, follow us on Twitter at TalkingMig and subscribe on your favourite podcast provider. But that was all for this time. Thank you very much for listening.